I just want to begin just with this question, what's going on? And uh, actually, I feel like uh, Johan did a great job of just summarizing at least what's on my mind, what's going on, right? Whether it is on a global stage, um, what's happening in places like uh, Ukraine and Sri Lanka, in China, Taiwan, um, but also more closely to home, when we, every week when we pray for Sarah and her parents and Justin's dad and others who are suffering in our midst. I mean, really, the one word that describes, for me, what's going on is that single word, suffering. And I know that the many of us who are, who are here, um, you may not share that with people you know, around you or in your house church, or you may even not even really uh, think about it that much. But deep down, I think it's pretty much universal that everyone, every human being, at almost every time, uh, can identify with what it means to suffer. And, uh, and the Bible has a, has a lot to say about this. And so we're going to look into the Bible today. But before that, I wanted to just uh, begin with a quote from Tim Keller. He's one of my favorite uh, pastors and, and uh, um, uh, author and teacher of our generation. And uh, here's what he wrote that I think really fits kind of the mindset and, uh, of people in our age, in, in our time. He says, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. You know, I think I hear some of the older people kind of laugh because they, we experienced this. And I think all of us do too. May I add here just one more thought? That even for Christians... We have this mentality sometimes that if I follow God, obey Him, He will bless me and protect me from these unfortunate things that ruin our happiness. As we'll see today, it's actually, I would say, it's actually the opposite. <laughs> you know? Now, here's another quote. He continues, he says, In the secular view, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. Christianity teaches that contra fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra karma, suffering is often unfair. I mean, the worst things tend to happen, it seems like, to the best people. But contra secularism, which is the predominant mindset of our days, suffering is meaningful. It isn't something just to avoid. There's a purpose to it, he says, and if, if, there's a big if. Faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. This is why we're going to study today. But you know, it's interesting. Tim Keller wrote this book about a dozen years ago. And I don't know if you follow him. He's 71 now. In this time of retirement, when he gets to enjoy the, kind of the fruits of his life, Four years ago, he was struck with the stage four, stage five pancreatic cancer. And life has been a battle for him every day. It's a reminder that no one escapes through this life, especially Christians. We're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, I put one there because there's no way we're going to cover the whole book. We're going to, in fact, just uh, focus on the first few verses. But I pray that you would have the chance to read it on your own, or if the Lord uh, gives me a chance, I'd love to talk about it next time. <clears throat> so I'm just going to read the whole chapter. Um, 
So, the, so, the, so it begins, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to, thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in, in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God and that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might that when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Now, before we get into the letter, I think it's really worthwhile for us to consider the background, specifically who are these Thessalonians that Paul is writing the letter to? Because in reviewing how the gospel, how the church, the gospel came to Thessalonica, you begin to understand, I think more fully, we begin to understand what Paul is saying and why he's saying what he's saying. As you guys know, the Thessalonians church was actually a fruit of Paul's second, second of three great missionary journeys that he undertook. I know the map may be a little bit unclear, but if you look at the left-hand corner, it began in Antioch. And I titled this The Church of the Thessalonians' Birth in Suffering that because even before Paul ever arrived in Thessalonica, the chain of events that led to there was all about suffering. So you may recall in, in Acts chapter 8, the first church that sprung up in Jerusalem was brutally persecuted, led by Paul, ironically himself. Um, and, 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 the, and the Christians were scattered everywhere. And some of them ended up in Antioch, this city that is in the southern part of a border area between Lebanon and Turkey today, on the eastern coast of Mediterranean. Now, the church of these scattered Christians, persecuted Christians, when they went to Antioch, they began to reach out for the first time to non-Jewish people around them. And, and the church in Antioch became not only the first, what would consider multicultural church, of the church age. It became also the first church that sent out missionaries. And those missionaries were Barnabas and Paul together. That was their first journey. Now, if you look, just look at the, started from there, you see the red line. They pretty much went through all of modern-day Turkey, the, uh, the western part of it, central and western part of it, all the way down to Greece, okay? Now, just to kind of put this in perspective, the total amount of mileage that, I mean, most of it on foot, um, that uh, Paul and, and uh, Paul went through was actually about 3,000 miles. And scholars estimate that Paul and his companions were walking about 30 miles a day. Has any of you ever walked 30 miles a day? 
You know, recently, I tricked my family into walking 12 miles around White Rock Lake. It took about four hours of walking, about five hours including lunch. Yeah, we'll never do that again as a family, you know. But remember, you know, that was the ideal condition. We had water bottles, you know, it was all flat. And it was just 12 miles in four hours. I cannot imagine what it was like to walk 30 miles, not through flat plains. I've been to part of uh, eastern Turkey, all through these mountains, without the benefit of nice walking shoes and, and water bottles, plastic, light plastic bottles. Now, I mention this because we forget that this is how literally the gospel came to us, down to us. It took great suffering, physical suffering, just for the gospel message to get there. But you know, when, when you look at Acts chapter 15 and 16, and to, that describes this journey, you know, Paul begins actually with a suffering that I believe is much even harder and more difficult than just physical suffering, and that is emotional suffering, relational suffering. As many of you may know, um, this is how uh, uh, it's described in Acts chapter 15, as Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas was Paul's mentor. Barnabas was Paul's best friend. As they started out on this journey together for the second time, the scripture says, and there arose a sharp, I underlined it, disagreement, so that they separated from each other. We don't know what exactly happened, but it was pretty bad because they decided not to journey with each other again. Now, this is a key theme. Paul doesn't go by himself. Instead, he picks another person, Silas or Silvanus, and they journey together through this difficult journey because as we will see, one of the, the most important factor as we go through life suffering is to not go alone, and Paul never goes alone. Um, Then he runs into another difficulty. See, he had all planned out. He had a plan of reaching uh, these uh, uh, cities on on the uh, western end, what what is known as Asia Minor, or at that time just Asia, province of Rome. But as they were going through, this is what happened. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So their plans were derailed. We don't know exactly, plans were derailed. We don't know exactly what happened, but it said that the Spirit forbid them to go and fulfill their plan of just doing God's work. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus again did not allow them. I don't know, some of you may have experienced just all of a sudden, your plans being derailed. And it happened again and again for Paul here as well. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, on the very on the on the, uh, on the western end of uh, of Asia, across the strait from Europe, and then a vision uh, uh, happened. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia. So Macedonia is the the European uh, across the European continent. It's the northern part of Greece. It's where Alexander the Great came out of and conquered the world. Right. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, you know, after this unknown time of waiting and being frustrated by his plans, he realized, here's what God is doing now. So he immediately adjusts his plan, and he says, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. On a minor side note, this is a pretty incredible uh, point of a book of Acts. Up, up, Up until this point, when you read it, the narrative is always in third-person plural, they, 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 they. 
And all of a sudden he says, we. And you guys know why. Because the author of the book of Luke, I'm author of Acts, who's Luke, who also wrote the book of Luke, is picked up here. We don't know the circumstances, but he joins Silvanus and Timothy, another young believer that the Paul picks up in a, in a nearby city, and Silvanus. And four of them together go into Europe against, in, in this brand new plan that was just concocted before their eyes. What's interesting is, as you guys know, that Luke was actually not Jewish like the rest of them. And, and, and he was a Greek, probably more familiar with Macedonia and what's going on in that part of the world. So God, at the right time, brings the right person against all, all of their previous disappointments, and they walk across, or probably sailed across, uh, into Europe. And this is the beginning of the history of Christianity in Europe that has impacted the world for 2,000 years, even down to us. Now, Paul continues. So the first city that they encounter is Philippi. Later, we, you know, Paul writes a letter to the, to the uh, Philippians. And actually there, I didn't write it down here, but you know, you, Paul's pattern was to go into, first of all, synagogue where he can preach to the Jews. And then the Greeks were also interesting, uh, interested in the God of Israel. But when he goes to Philippi, there is no uh, uh, synagogue because there weren't enough Jew or Jewish men to form a synagogue. So instead, he finds a lady. He goes out to, to pray outside of the city in, in, uh, into a place that had water so they could probably do ceremonial washing. And he runs into a lady named Lydia who was a non-Jewish woman who was, who was also a businesswoman. Uh, she was dealing in purple cloth. And he preaches the gospel to her and she accepts. And she becomes the first convert. And then later, her entire household becomes the first com- convert. And what a confirmation after y- months and months of toil they see the first fruit. And immediately afterwards, what happens to them? There's a misunderstanding, and this crowd turns against uh, Paul and his companions, and they join in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods, talking about going from a spiritual high down into the worst. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. And this is one of my favorite parts of Scripture. So what happens when they're in prison? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. This is how Christianity has come down to us. And the prisoners were listening to them. I don't think it was Paul's intention to preach the gospel when he was in prison. And, and, the, and the mysterious joy that he had in the midst of the severest of persecutions is going to be the theme, not only of the book of Thessalonians, I would say the scriptures, and I would say entire church history. This is how Christianity not only started, but has been sustained these last 2,000 years. And the prisoners were listening. May I just suggest, this is a side, it's not in my notes, but I often find this to be true too. Where we Christians really shine is is in the way that we deal with suffering. We do it differently than the rest of the world. And don't ever think that you're suffering alone or even just, you know, in the, comp- in the familiar company of other believers. The world is watching you. Your coworkers, your neighbors, people don't even know are watching us because the way we handle suffering, which everyone ha- also receives, is so radically different. 
And so you know the story, there is an earthquake, the, the jailer is, thinks that everyone has escaped, but all the prisoners are there, including Paul. And, then, and Paul preaches the gospel to them. And then these famous words, the Philippian jailer who was about to commit suicide says, Now, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, the middle of the night, must be 2, 3 o'clock in the morning by then. He takes them home to his house and he washes their wounds. And Paul later then baptized not only the jailer but the entire family. This is amazing. I don't know how many times in the history of baptism in the, in, in the church where the person who was baptizing had to be washed of his wounds first so that he could baptize the person. But this picture of Paul, wounds everywhere after being beaten up, having to be bandaged and cleansed, and then him getting up to baptize a new believer. No doubt. It wasn't the, the physical washing or the bandages that healed Paul. It was the joy of seeing this Philippian jailer and his family embracing Christianity in, in the city of Philippi. And he goes on. Then the next city that he goes to is Thessalonica. Thessalonica is, at that time was one of the largest cities of the, of the entire Roman Empire. It was a prominent city. It was a, it was. At that time, the second most uh, important city in, in, in uh, Greece after Athens. And even today, it is the second most important city in Greece after Athens. So Paul goes there, and as I've said, as his usual pattern, he goes on three Sabbath days, he goes into the local synagogue, and he reasoned with the people who were gathered there um, from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. Think about that. The message that he delivered was perfectly reflected in the way that he came to deliver the message. It was a message of suffering, rooted in the suffering of Jesus Christ. And he embodies that message. It wasn't just something that he speaks about in a third-person sense, Jesus suffered. He suffered, as we've seen. Only to rise again from the dead. And that's why we see Paul in, in, the Philippian, uh, in Philippi and other places continue to rise again after their experience of suffering, and saying and continuing to say, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. This is the beginning of the first church in Europe. And as predictably, along with this great news of the fruit of the gospel, the Jews were jealous and they aroused the city and the next thing you know, Paul is once again persecuted so much that the, the, these local believers who just became believers kind of almost forced Paul and his companions to leave them. They, 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 they take them out of the city for their sake, for Paul's sake, but probably for theirs as well. And this how, was how the church in Thessalonica was birthed. It was in suffering. But not just any kind of a meaningless suffering, I mean, the closest I can think of is, is, is the suffering that I saw when my wife went through 12 hours of labor for my first son, you know. And I think a lot of the women can relate. When you suffer through the pain of a childbirth, you don't just wish that the suffering would go away. Of course you do, but that's not the point. What you want to see is a healthy new life. And welcoming that life is what sustains women to do this again and again ever since Eve. 
And once the child is born, the joy of welcoming the child takes away even the harsh memories of pain. And I know that's true because my wife had a second child after that, and that's Hannah. So this is how the gospel not only got to Thessalonica, and I, I just took time to do this because this is how it has got to every one of us. This is the normative pattern. Here's what Paul says in his first letter. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so he became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The, Lord, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere, including Plano, Texas. So what happened was after Paul had to leave, he's anxious like any new parents would be. He's wondering what happened to these precious believers. And so he sends Timothy to find out what happened. He probably was too, it was too hot for him to go back himself. So Timothy comes back and he reports back, hey, persecution is still ongoing, but their faith is growing. And so Paul says, and this is actually wrong, First Thessalonians, he says, we sent Timothy so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. He sends them again because he's concerned, not just what the suffering is doing to them, but what suffering is doing to their faith. He says, for you know quite well that we are destined for them, these trials, these sufferings, these persecutions. You see, this was true of the Thessalonians, but it's also true of every church and every Christian, is that we are destined for persecution and trials and tribulations. There is no way of escaping it. This doesn't sound like an attractive invitation for non-believers, but hang on, it is, it is. Because as we know in life, even outside of the church, what we measure, how worthwhile something is, by what we're willing to endure. And there's, that's why that the, the amount of persecution and trials and tribulations that Christians and churches go through far exceeds anything else. Because what is promised to us and what we'll have one day is so much worth everything that we can endure. He says, in fact, we were, when we were with you, we kept telling you, we kept telling you, yes, we're preaching the good news, but at the same time, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. Notice he says, doesn't say you would be persecuted. He says we would be persecuted. Why? Because Paul knew from the beginning, because he himself was one who persecuted the church, that that is the destiny of every Christian. And it turned out that way, as you well know, he says. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Last week, Pastor Paul spoke about Satan and in Absalom's rebellion. See, Satan, what he intends to do continually, even after we become Christians, is to tempt us. Not so that we will lose our faith, but that we will become fruitless. And that we, in discouragement, discouraged and unsettled by these trials, would turn back. And this was a genuine worry that Paul had. And it is a genuine worry that all of us should have regarding our children, regarding the new believers and the VIPs around us. That the trials and the suffering, the damaging effect is not just what they are in themselves, no matter how difficult that they are. It is what they can lead to, which is spiritual damage to us 
We have to keep that in mind when we think about suffering. That there's far things that is far more serious and worse than the suffering itself. And that is what the suffering, how the suffering will be used by our tempter, Satan, to cause us to fall away from our destiny in the kingdom of God. So we're in the crosshairs of spiritual danger. Now, Paul says in Acts chapter 14, so during his first missionary journey, he says to this, another group of believers, he says, we must go through. Notice what he's, let me just say it again. We must go through. There is no escape. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas, so what does he do? Knowing that this is the truth, they do something. They do two things that are critical. And again, we've got to pay attention here. First thing is they appointed elders for them in each church. Elders are spiritual leaders. In, in the Bible, the word elder or, 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 or uh, um, in other translations, bishops, uh, shepherds, pastors, they're all pretty much synonymous. So he points to the fact that the only way that the Christians and Christian community can survive that type of suffering that we're destined for is when we have leaders and shepherds who look over us. That's number one. And then the second thing is this, with prayer and fasting. The emphasis is really prayer, but the degree of how serious their prayer was underscored by fasting. They prayed and fasted, and they committed each of the Christians to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. These two factors of people, of spiritual leaders around us, and of prayer are the key, and may I suggest the only defense that we have against the suffering that that we're destined for. And so Paul, after the first letter, recognizing that the, the suffering is continuing and the danger to their spiritual faith continues, he writes this, another letter, Second Thessalonians, and that's what we'll look at today. That's what we're looking at today. And the, in the first part that we're looking at today, what he does is, above all, he reminds them of the person of God. You see, that's why in the first few lines, he repeats to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, grace to, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we know from Scripture, the most important literary device of Scripture is repetition. And Paul almost clumsily repeats this phrase, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, twice. Because may I suggest this is probably the most important thing that we got to hang on to when we go through sufferings. And that is not just that God exists, or that not just that God is this power, or that he's somewhere who created the universe, but God is Father. He's someone who intimately knows us and cares for us and provides for us. And not only is he just father, he's our father, he's my father. Because everything that Satan is trying to accomplish through persecutions in our lives is to undermine the fact and our rock-solid belief that God cares as a father over us. And furthermore, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord means that, that, that Jesus Christ is the one who is over the affairs of the entire world. It is not Putin, it is not Biden, it is not any human being who's ever, who's ever lived, and it is not even Satan. That ultimately, over and beyond all the difficult circumstances of our life, is the Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
And we know who Jesus was. He, when he was on earth, was man who was, as scripture says, familiar with all kinds of sufferings. Who himself cried out in suffering. And who can sympathize with everything that we've ever gone through. Who's been tempted and tried in every way possible. He, this most compassionate person, is the Lord. So whatever happens to us, we have to keep in mind, it is coming under the lordship of my Lord Jesus Christ. It is being allowed and destined by God, who is my Father, our Father. See, what we need to do and what Paul is doing is this. We need to focus not on what immediately is causing our suffering. See, this is only natural. When anything bad happens, we immediately think, what is the cause? What's causing this pain? What's causing this sickness? Because we want to deal with it. And what Paul is saying is don't focus on that. Instead, remember who's carrying us through the suffering and caring for us in our suffering. It is not who's causing it. It is who's carrying us. It is who's caring for us. In fact, the Bible has so many uh, uh, references of how God carries his people through their trials and suffering as her father. I love this reference. I'll just bring out one reference. It means a lot to me because it says, Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnants of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your youth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs. Yeah, that's why I identify. I have gray hairs. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. And the way, a practical way that God carries us is, is that he puts us, every Christian, into a community that cares for us. And that is the church. Notice again how he begins. He, there's reason. This isn't just greetings. He begins by saying, not just I, Paul. He says, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Recognizing and reminding of the fact that Paul was never alone. That even when he was in Philippi in the jail, he sang because he could sing because he had Sylvanus with him. And Paul didn't leave them alone. He left the church. It's the church in Thessalonica together that are suffering. This, I, again, it seems so simple, but it is so important. There is no such thing in the Bible as a lone Christian. The scripture only talks about church. Because every Christian, just as no child is just born in the wild and then grows into adulthood by themselves, every Christian must be in a church because that is where we receive the care and the nurture that every person needs to grow. This is again no accident. Jesus says in John, before he leaves, he says, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus' love continues. We experience that through the love of the people that God has put into our lives. And in Galatians, Paul says, carry each other's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Unlike all other religions, Christianity really has really one basic simple law, what Paul calls the law of Christ. 
It is to love each other. And love of all ball means to carry each other's burdens, meaning all, those, all the heavy burdens we go through in life. Don't let them be alone, but carry it with them. And again, and that is a great lesson for us here, that we must remember that, you, that we are not ever alone in our suffering. See, the moment you think in your suffering that you're alone is the moment when Satan has you firmly in his grasp. I know. You know, as a 21-year-old, 20-year-old, sinking into depression, I still can just recall all the steps. But it, but it got so much worse, and it finally led, the, what led me into thinking that suicide was the only option was thinking that I was utterly alone in my suffering and in my confusion and my depression. You see, that is Satan's tactic, is to lie to you and convince us that you're alone, that you're better off dead than alive that no one will understand, that no one will sympathize, or your shame is too great. You cannot tell anybody. As a practical matter, right, as a, as a Christian, we got to make sure that we're never alone. Don't be alone. Don't be alone. And I love the fact that in our church, we actually have a structure that helps you not to be alone. I love that almost everybody who comes to our church, pretty much every week go to a house church. Don't be alone. Don't be alone, especially when you want to be alone. Don't be alone. And when you, are, when you go as best as you can, through the help of the Spirit, don't hide behind facade of everything is okay. You know, usually in a group of people, whatever many, we're just naturally not comfortable with sharing, especially the deep things that we really should be sharing about, the burdens. All it takes usually is one person who is brave enough, courageous enough, faithful enough, sometimes desperate enough, just open up the floodgates. And when you do, others will also. Instead of looking at you like, what are you talking about? Almost every time, they will also share. And you'll be like, where did that come from? From the deepest part of their being. Don't be alone. Don't be alone. And furthermore, don't let them be alone. Even at a church, we're beating to be a size. We're, you know, we don't really know what's going on sometimes. Make sure, even on a Sunday morning or Friday nights or in between, when you see somebody in your heart is feeling like they're alone, they're not connected, they're not talking to anybody, talk to them. You may have to start with just, hey, what's going on? What do you think about the cow? Something superficial. But don't stay there. Stay. And, uh, and ask caring, probing questions. And meet them again until you can begin to really help them realize that they're not alone. Because if we don't do this, guys, we're defenseless. In Hebrews, uh, uh, Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews makes a similar encouragement. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. The reason why he says all the more as you see the day approaching is because Scripture also teaches us, as the final day of judgment and the coming of Christ approaches, suffering and persecution will intensify. So every week, I pray that we will continue to show up like we say in our house church and to share. And you know, 
Another thing here. Sometimes we think, the reason I come to church is because I need to be encouraged. The reason I need to go to house churches is so that I'll be nurtured. And that's true. But there's another equation to that. And that is the reason why I show up is so that I could encourage somebody else. So that I could fulfill and, 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 and live after how Jesus modeled what it means to be fully godly and fully human, which is to love. May I again say, as, in, as strongly as possible, the times when you don't least want to go are the t- times when you're most needed to go, not only for yourself, but because who knows, your sharing and your presence will encourage your brother and sister who desperately needs it. And as we saw with Paul, there is no greater joy when God uses frail, imperfect, suffering people as we are to bring about the joy of the Spirit in someone else's heart. Finally, what Paul does here is to help them focus not on what is happening to them or what is being done to them, right? This is another really important, simple but really important principle. When we go through trials and sufferings, it consumes us. Especially when you go through unjust suffering, it can totally consume us where all we think about is what, what has been or what is being done to us. Instead, what Paul here does is to remind us that we need to recognize that even in the worst of circumstances, there's something that is being done which is good and great because God is in it. We need to focus not what is being done to us, but to recognize what good is, is being done in us. And we do that not only for ourselves, for, but for the people that we're praying for who are suffering. Look what Paul says. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you, one another, is increasing. Now, the word that I highlighted here is interesting. It says, When he says your faith is growing abundantly, it's actually a compound verb in Greek. Uh, 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 first of all, it's based on the word growth, which is like an agriculture, like a plant growing like crazy, right? But he adds the word hooper or hyper in front of it, which has the same meaning in English. What he's describing is a hyper growth of their faith. It's the only time that's used in the Bible. You ever wonder, like, how can my faith just go beyond the basic elementary facts? How can my faith so seem so still? What do I need to grow? Let me tell you, Bible studies help. Good sermons help. Fellowship, worship, all these things help. But the only place that I found in Scripture that talks about something that can lead to your hyper growth, and I don't know about you, I want hyper growth if I'm going to have faith, right? Hyper growth is through the suffering that God ordains in our lives. This is why God destines them for us. Because he wants us to, our faith to grow like weeds in my backyard. Hyper growth. And you know, it's interesting. He doesn't just talk about faith growing in, a, in an abstract sense. In, 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 in the scriptures, growing faith is always coupled with the evidence of that growing faith. Which is what? Increasing love for one another. Right? You can't just say, I'm growing in knowledge and I'm growing in faith. I know a lot about the scripture. I can defend my faith. I can argue with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims, whatever. Right? If, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you don't have love. 
because these are conjoined together. That faith and love are always conjoined. You know you're growing in faith when your love is growing. And when you honestly say that, you know what, my faith has been static. It's limited to just myself and the people that are nearest to me. May I suggest that your faith is also static. And a static faith is the cousin of a dead faith. And again, this is why God ordains suffering in our lives. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute, but you know what? Nothing bad is happening to me, you know? That's up to God. There's a flip side, which I'll go into next week. It is our willingness to suffer for what is worthy. That when we're willing to step into a life of somebody who's suffering, when we get into their lives, beginning by asking, hey, what's going on? And once we find out, not shrinking away from their problems, not just saying, okay, I'll pray for you and walk away. But when we become intimately knitted together in their suffering, what we begin to realize is that their suffering becomes our suffering and we suffer as well. This is why suffering is destiny of every Christian because we're called to love like this, to bear the burdens of one another and not afraid of getting our hands dirty and our feelings complicated because we step into a mess of people's lives with hope in Christ. My final point I'd like to suggest is this. It's very interesting So, how Paul phrased this. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you as it is right because your faith is growing. You know, we saw earlier in in, in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul confessing how anxious he felt, how worried he was about about because Thessalonians were going through suffering and he was concerned about their faith. You know, oftentimes when we encounter and uh, uh, when we uh, experience, uh, when we see suffering in the people of that we around people, uh, for, uh, suffering in the people that we care for, whether it's our own children or parents or people in our house, church, wherever. As Christians, we rightly respond by praying. That's true. But you know, as I thought about this, I realized, you know what? Prayer that just says remove the suffering. By the way, Paul never says that. Our scripture never, never really prays that God will remove the suffering in our lives. If, if the prayer stops there, that's not scripture prayer either. Because that is neglecting and, and, and not remembering the fact that God has put the suffering for a reason as part of our destiny. So Paul, so I can imagine Paul at first, like all, any one of us, responding to the crisis when he hears the news by feeling emotions of worry and concern. So he turns those worries and concerns into prayer and petition. He begins to pray, God, please help them. God, please help them, protect them. And as he begins to pray, he remembers that in, that in the Psalms where we learn to pray, where Jewish people learn to pray, again and again and again, we are commanded to give thanks to God. That's why he says we ought always to give thanks to God. This is what we're supposed to do. Even when we don't feel like it, and even when we see any reasons to thank God for, because how can you thank God for suffering? But he says we ought always to give thanks to God for you, meaning as he continues to pray, and he remembers who God is, he begins to experience that his prayers are changing. That rather than worries and concerns and petition, those petitions become thanksgiving. Why? Because as he was praying, he could see not only the suffering and who's causing the suffering, 
But he's beginning to see that it is God who's intimately involved in their suffering. And it is God who carries them. And it is God who is working in them in the midst of their suffering. May I suggest that in our concerns and worries, not only for us, but especially for those people around us, that we keep praying. You said, well, what do I pray for? And what do I, when do I stop praying? May I suggest that we keep praying until thanksgiving pours out of our mouths. Proper prayer doesn't end just with the petition. By faith, those petitions and worries convert into thanksgiving. And once we start giving thanks to God, because we see that in the midst of the worst circumstances, God is doing something amazing in them, then joy begins to infiltrate our heart. You know, I experienced this a couple of weeks ago. Oh, actually, a month ago. You know, for the first time, my, my wife and I, since our kids were born, we experienced what it meant like to be, have our, both of our kids out of our roof. Noah was in a far, he was in Ecuador, far country away. And, and Hannah went two weeks to a college camp. And uh, we had all kinds of anxieties. One night, it was late at night, my wife and I are in bed, we're talking, and uh, we started just like talking about all of our anxieties, all the things that can go wrong, and all the fears that we had over our, our kids. And it just kept getting worse, because we're just feeding on each other's concerns and worries. And at some point, I don't remember who, we said, let's pray. So we started praying. And as we started praying, at first it was a bunch of petitions, like I said, God, please. And then as we kept praying, this, we experienced this. God started to bring into our minds how God has been walking with our children since they were born. And how God is still continuing to work in them and through them. And as we started focusing on those things instead of all the other fears the parents have, our prayers really did become thanksgiving. We started thanking God. And we just kept thanking God. And yes, we slept with joy and peace that night. May I, may I suggest that this becomes our pattern of prayer, that we keep praying until we can experience the kind of joy and the peace and thanksgiving that only the Holy Spirit can give to us as we pray. I want to end with this quote from Tim Keller because it points to, again, to Christ. He knows all the suffering that we go through. Not only that, he's in heaven, still now, anxious over us and interceding for us. Here's what he says. Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound, nailed, so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. There's only one. That has been cast away from God. Because he experienced that for us on the cross. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great, truly great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond. And the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. I have to admit, when I read this, I thought about myself. 
You know, and I've, I had a lot of complexes. I thought I was not so good looking, right? I never thought that I would ever own the adjective gorgeous. And I do so. Because I know what God has been doing in my heart. And I know what God has been doing in some of your lives. It is truly gorgeous. May we focus on that. And may we focus on God who will turn our lumps into something that is more valuable and more precious than anything else in the universe. Let's pray.